have your Bibles tonight, we'd like to turn to Genesis chapter 29. Genesis 29, two weeks ago, if you remember, uh, we read the story of Jacob's deception of his father in order to receive the blessing of the older son, discovering that um, God uses even human deception to accomplish his redemptive purpose, purpose, but in yet another story of deception tonight, uh, God's power to accomplish his will isn't just general. Um, he can fulfill his promise to Jacob that his descendants will be as numerous as the dust of the earth through human deceit. Genesis reveals that God has a plan of redemption for creation that he will bring about through his promise to bless a man named Abraham. The rest of the story of the Bible is really various people trying to grasp the blessing for themselves by their own effort instead of believing the promise. The issue there is that this promise cannot be grasped. The blessing can't just be grabbed or taken. It can only be received. We may only ever be God's beneficiaries. We can never be God's benefactors. Every promise of God finds its fulfillment only in Jesus Christ, including the promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that their descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the dust of the earth. But that won't happen through DNA. It won't be the result of belonging to a certain bloodline. It will be the result of God's grace when by Christ, the ultimate commission from heaven is given to go and make disciples of all nations. The descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that will be as countless as the sand and the stars will be those of faith who simply believe in the God of plan and promise to be their salvation. And once again, the fact that this promise will continue by the very means of deceit, we keep seeing this as proof of how sovereign the God of plan and promise remains at every step of the story of redemption, of how relentless he is to bring about salvation, even out of the wickedness of his creation. Let me pray for us one more time. Father, I ask tonight that for your name's sake and for your son, for our faith in him, that you would open our eyes to see your word and to understand it clearly, to believe what it tells us and what you promise us in it. So, Father, be with me as I speak. Watch over everyone who hears. I ask and pray this. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Well, if anybody knew about deceit, right, it was Jacob. He wanted the blessing of the firstborn so much that he deceived his blind father, and it worked. He received the blessing from Isaac, but in chapter 28, uh, last week we found him on the run because his older brother Esau wanted to kill him. He's on that 400-mile journey north to the territory of his uncle Laban, but he's about to leave the promised land. The God of Abraham and Isaac meets him in a dream. And God promises this deceiver, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. God promises Jacob that the land on which he lays will be given to him and to his offspring and they will be like the dust of the earth. So God, uh, Jacob continues on his journey here, that journey in chapter 29. Look at verse 1. He says, Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. A month-long journey on which the Lord was with him, as he promised, is covered in one verse. 
As he approaches his destination, we pick it up in verse 2. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large. And when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Genesis has um, shown us just from a, a, a... I guess a cultural or historical perspective, how vital wells were to these communities. If the stone covering the mouth, uh, uh, if the stone covering on the mouth of a well was left on for too long, the well would eventually fill with sand. So shepherds would wait until all the flocks had gathered around a well to remove the stone. They'd water all the sheep and then they'd hurry up and replace the stone to cover the well. Let's pick it up in verse four. Jacob said to them, my brothers, where do you come from? They said, we are from Haran. He said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, we know him. He said to them, is it well with him? They said, it is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. Now, this all sounds, if you remember the story of the servant of Abraham, this all sounds very familiar, ridiculously familiar. In fact, as you keep reading, Abraham had sent his servant to Haran a long time ago to find a wife for Isaac, Jacob's father, Abraham had told that servant, you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live, but will go to my country and my kindred and get a wife for my son Isaac. That was 24, 3 and 4. The servant was promised that the Lord would send his angel before him to help him on the journey. In fact, the Lord led the servant straight to a well where some shepherds were watering their flocks. So he prayed fervently to the Lord. He saw that. God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today. I am standing here by the spring of water, and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. Let the girl to whom I shall say, please offer your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And before he had finished speaking, there was Rebekah. It was 24, 12 through 15. It's very likely that the Lord has led Jacob to that very same well, but... For all the similarities, there are some very important differences in this story. Notice, unlike the servant, immediately Jacob does not pray for guidance. He doesn't thank the Lord for leading him to his relatives, and it looks, once again, like he's going to take matters into his own hands. Just very quickly here, isn't that always the way? We we so often think there comes a point in our journey with God when the rest is up to us. Where the Lord has done all He's going to do, and now the rest depends on us. Beloved, that is never the case with God. The Lord will never leave the final procurement of His promises to us. Do you know that tonight? Do you live with that in your heart, in your soul, in your mind? Whether or not you will receive all that God has promised to you doesn't finally depend on you. It's a matter to God of Him keeping the word that He promised you. It's not your worthiness. Rest in the promise-keeping God that you have. Rest in Him. As soon as the shepherds tell Him that Rachel, the daughter of Laban, is coming with the sheep, He tries to hurry them off. Notice this. Look at verse 7. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we, then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep for she was a shepherdess. This is his cousin. 
His mother, Rebecca, at one time, now his cousin, Rachel. How could he have not seen that this was the Lord's leading in all this, that God was with him? Right? You see how immediately he went from believing the Lord to trying to take care of the situation, rush, so he's filled with anxiety now. Got to get the other shepherds out of there, get everyone out of there. He doesn't thank the Lord for leading him right to his uncle's family. Takes matters into his own hands again. Look at verse 10. Now, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. That's actually pretty impressive. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. So he rolls the stone away all by himself. And instead of waiting for all the flock as the shepherds would have, Jacob waters Laban's flocks only. Right? Then he kisses Rachel, tells her who he is, just like Rebecca. Rachel runs home to tell her father Laban. Now Laban probably remembers all those nice gifts he got from Abraham's servant in the same type of situation. So we read in verse 13, as soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. You think, oh, what a great guy. No, Laban is not a great guy. Jacob told Laban all these things. Jacob doesn't have a retinue with him, right? He just has the clothes on his back, entirely different situation. But Laban still invites him to his home, wants to hear his whole story, including how he had been sent here in the first place to find a wife from his mother's family. You remember in the story of Abraham and the servant, that was a whole chapter. Basically, the servant just telling the story. We see none of that here. In verse 14, and Laban said to him, surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. That phrase sounds like when Adam first saw Eve, right? The problem is that here, it's nothing like that. Laban is saying to Jacob, after he hears everything that Jacob has done and how he got here, ah, you're like me, right? You're also a deceiver. You're also willing to do whatever you have to do to get what you want. He knows Jacob's a man who's willing to work for what he wants, right? So he invites him to stay. One more worker is a good thing for Laban. After a month, after a month, he sees how hard he works. He also has to know that Jacob is absolutely head over heels for his daughter, Rachel. He has all the leverage, right? Verse 15, then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Well, apparently so. It's been a month. <laughs> Tell me, what shall your wages be? This is about to become a 20-year relationship to pay off a bride price. It's not a, not a kind uncle helping his nephew. Well, before we hear Jacob tell him his price for working, the narrator Add some tension here. Look at verse 16. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. Now, so far in the Bible, have we read anything about tension between older and younger siblings? Right? Has there been anything in the Bible that has let us know, oh great, we have this again. Right? So he's in love with Rachel. Well, it turns out there's an older daughter. Well, that's okay because if anybody knows about the way it works, that the older receives the things first, it's Jacob. So this should be a wonderful, very excellent situation for everybody involved. Look at verse 17. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. The phrase is, is a little strange. We don't know exactly what it means. What it probably means is that in this culture, 
a, a female's eyes that, that had a fire or a sparkle to them, that was a, a trait that was highly prized. That was how you knew a woman was beautiful in this culture. And the Bible's telling you Leah didn't have that quality, right? It's actually kind of sad. It's, it's The narrator is basically telling us that Rachel was gorgeous and Leah had a nice personality. That's kind. Of, it's, it's kind of the same type of thing. Well, which one of these two will Jacob work for, do you think? The older or the younger one that he's already infatuated with. Jacob doesn't conduct any test like Abraham's servant had. He, he wants to be with Rachel. Verse 18, Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. So Jacob is specific. Remember that because Laban will not be. That's important. The reason Jacob would offer to serve Laban for seven years is remember, he's a fugitive. Jacob doesn't have any money. Doesn't have any resources, no silver or gold for a bride price. So instead he offers what he does have, work for Rachel. But why seven years? In Deuteronomy 22, 29, the maximum marriage gift was 50 shekels. The, the price was typically much lower though. If a shepherd's wage was about 10 shekels a year, Jacob is offering 70 shekels, which was basically twice the normal rate at the time. This is a very high offer because he doesn't want to take the chance that Laban won't accept it. So he goes over, which was very smart because Laban accepts it immediately because it's a, it's a win-win for Laban. He keeps the services of his daughter seven more years, gains the additional services of Jacob for seven more years. In verse 19, Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. Interesting. That's interesting. Laban doesn't specify. He says her, right? He doesn't say Rachel. And I wonder if it was because of what he planned on doing. Look at verse 20. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel. And they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. So that is quite a love. If seven years of work feels like a couple days. He, he did love her, no question. He fulfills the seven-year agreement, but it, it seems like Laban has just kind of forgotten about it because Jacob has to come to him and remind him. We pick it up in verse 21. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. Laban throws a feast. It's a drinking party. Feast is from mista, which means to drink, right? So that's what this is. Normally a wedding would have had processions to and from the bride's house for, for a week, a reading of the marriage contract, a large meal that both family and neighbors would attend. When the first day's celebration ended, the groom wrapped his cloak around the bride. She had been veiled throughout that day, throughout the ceremony, took her to the nuptial chamber where the marriage was consummated. The feasting and celebration, though, that went on for a whole week. All right, look at verse 23. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Jacob doesn't notice at all. The bride is veiled. It's dark. He's probably a little intoxicated. This would be like something crazy if you wanted to get one over on somebody. It'd be like if you wanted to, uh, you know, fool your dad that you were your older brother. And, uh, you know, because he was old and blind and he couldn't see very well. And so you knew he wouldn't be able to recognize you. So if you wanted to like, you know, steal the inheritance from your brother or something, you could concoct this scheme and wait for just the right time, right? It, it's happening to him. And it's not 
we don't, how did Leah feel about all this? Is this what she wanted? Yes, Leah is the older daughter. Culturally, the values were different. I understand that. So you certainly, if you were the older daughter, it, it seems in Scripture, wanted to marry. And again, if you were the firstborn, you would expect to be first. But what if she didn't like him? Right? What, what if she just didn't like him? What if she didn't think he was attractive? What if she wasn't into him at all? And Will he instantly divorce her? Will he, will he instantly take Rachel instead? There's a pause first in the passage in verse 24. Laban, notice it's in parentheses, gave his female servant Zilpah, to his daughter Leah to be her servant. So in this culture, the father of the bride would give a dowry to his daughter when she got married. Normally, it was it was a good sum of money, or or a you know clothes, or a lot of servants. Laban, being the big spender that he is, gives her one servant, his own maid. So he keeps it in his house, his own maid, Zilpah. With seven years of Jacob's service now, he's finally going to make some good money on this less attractive daughter of his, apparently, that is named Leah. And maybe there's even more money to be had for his house with Zilpah, and he can have some more kids. Right, but back to Jacob, verse 25. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Yeah, Jacob, it doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good to be deceived. His father had weak eyes. Now he has a bride he never wanted with weak eyes. And I don't mean that as any insult to Leah. Leah's story is very, very sad. At least looking at what we see. The deceiver has been deceived with the exact same ruse, right? Jacob had pretended to be his older brother Esau. And it worked. Why? Because Isaac was basically blind and Isaac had been enjoying food and wine. 27, 15. Now Leah has pretended to be her younger sister Rachel and it worked because Jacob was blind in the dark night and with the wine and food. He goes straight to Laban here and notice this. Laban doesn't even blink here. Look at verse 26. Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Did Laban just figure that out the, the night before? Laban knew that the whole time. I, I, to be deceived is just brutal. At one time, I, uh, it was before Carmine was born, Christy and I took the girls. They were so little. We took them to the circus in Columbus at the Celeste Center, the fairgrounds. And that uh, was inside this, you know, this big, huge convention center and before the circus started, there were like some rides and some games around like a little carnival. And so you could walk through and and uh, we didn't just in point of fact, because it's related to the story. We did not have a lot of money at the time at all. So every every dime you had was pretty precious to have. So we could ride a limited amount of rides, play a, a very I, I plan on playing no games. I'm the guy that believes, you know, like like many they're all rigged, you know what I mean? That's what I say. Don't play that, they're rigged, you know, all that stuff. So we're walking by and there's this game where you can throw darts at balloons and pop them. And if so, you win a big stuffed animal. And they have, of course, all the big stuffed animals hanging there. I had zero intention to stop and play that game. The guy, but I have these three adorable little girls with me that they're, you know, they're looking at the stuffed animals. Well, the guy running the game says, hey, you girls want to try to win a stuffed animal? I was like, no, that's okay, we're good. And 
They're like, you know, they, they can barely talk, but they were nervous. They didn't know what to do. And he said, he said, no, it's easy. You love to play. It's so much fun. It's really easy. All you got to do is pop one balloon and you win a stuffed animal. And they're looking at each other and they're looking at me. And the guy goes, here, dad, show them how easy it is. And he hands me three darts. I pop three balloons. It's, it's, I mean, any of us could, right? You're, you're barely, you know, and he says, dad, show them again. Show them again. He hands me three more darts. He's like, see, girl, see how easy it is here, dad. Three more darts. And he, and finally, he, so I've thrown nine darts. He goes, all right, all right, Dad, $15. I did not agree to play the game. I, I mean, do you, do you see what he did? I appreciate his skill. I mean, he just took me completely. I'm like, yeah, kids, this is easy. Watch. And he's just handing me darts. And I'm thinking we're just showing them how it works. I'm not showing them how it works. I just bought three games. All right? So my kids got the biggest stuffed animals ever, but I was so mad. I was so mad. I just looked at the guy like, you just did that. You completely took me. I fell for it, hook, line, and sinker. What could I do? Right? But $15 gone. Being deceived is just when you know you've been had, when you know you've been taken, whether whether it's a big deal or a small deal, it's one of the worst feelings in the world. Jacob has met his match. Right? He's met his match in the scheme of Laban, and Laban isn't done. Laban comes up with a new plan. Look at verse uh, 27 here. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. It's a very strange culture that, that that's how daughters were just treated, bartered apparently. But complete the bridal week for Leah, then you can have Rachel for the small price of another seven years, and we're square. What does he do now? Another seven years with Laban? Now, now he's probably thinking, how do I know when this seven years are up that it's, I'm going to have Rachel? Like, how, I, how do I know what it's going to be like? This was just supposed to be a while, his mom had said. Remember, she said that just for a while. It's been seven years. It's about to be 14 at this point. Well, what can he do if he really loves her? If he wants her, he has no wiggle room, so he gives in. Verse 28, Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife's. And again, generous Laban gives another dowry to Rachel. This time in 29, Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. We don't read that that second seven flew by in a few days like the first seven. This is, this is probably a much longer, difficult period of time. The whole, his father-in-law is now his adversary. Imagine that relationship day after day. Um, we'll find out in the next chapter, next week, God willing, that the two wives and the maids just make for constant tension in their household. How could it be any different? Jacob's life had become a mess. Where is God? Right? Where is? Imagine Jacob thinking seven years out with seven more passing from that night and he had that dream and the Lord spoke to him. Where are you? What are you doing here? His life is just a mess now. All those wonderful promises he'd received, and where are they? Where's God's word? How easy is it to believe in the midst of adversity that what the adversity means is that God is absent and doesn't care anymore or doesn't see? How easy is that to believe? And yet we read the Bible and discover time and again that this is normally the field where God works, isn't it? Nothing ever seems to come easy. 
not in our perception anyway. Adversity is the very soil in which God works to bear unbelievable fruit. Glory in the fallen creation doesn't just happen. Very rarely does it just fall into our laps. Suffering tends to make the road to glory, beloved. God didn't choose a different means than that to bring about our redemption, did he? He didn't just announce it one day and done. No, no, no. There, there was an incarnation and rejection and suffering and betrayal and deception and a tree and nails and death and all these things. That's how glory came. So God is just, just in a sense showing his hand that he's going to work through very unlikely means to bring about what he promises. But we all know that, like nobody in here probably disagrees with that, and we all know that. When you're suffering, though, in the midst of suffering, if I just walk into your hospital room and you have cancer, and I'm like, well, hey, God works together all things for good. Do you notice that doesn't make you go, oh, well, great. This tumor is fantastic. It doesn't work that way. And God doesn't expect it to work that way. God doesn't require of you that it works that way. It may seem like God has forgotten or turned his back on Jacob here, but nothing could be further from the truth. Laban's deception is how God will fulfill his promise of giving Jacob a multitude of offspring. He, 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 I mean, it's, it, it's going to sound crass. I do not mean it to. But there are four women that are about to be on the scene. That can be a lot of kids. Okay, that can start quite a bit. All four of these women will bear children, and they will become the 12 tribes of Israel. Do you think Jacob could conceive of any such thing? Getting up and going to work every day for another seven years, just eking out his existence to pay off his time so that he could get on with his life? Right? It, 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 we read these as stories. This is real, everyday life. Jacob experienced a full 14 years working to have something that he wanted. So he's getting up, going to work every day. He has the promises of God in his mind, but how can I believe they're going to come true when I've been duped by my uncle and there's nothing that I can do about it? Right? We feel stuck so often. And yet, what is God doing? Well, he's doing exactly what he said he was going to do. Sin won't overturn God's purposes. People's interruptions won't overturn God's purposes. I think we, we think too highly of ourselves in that we think too much of our own weaknesses. As though we often think, well, I, you know, God, I don't know what you're going to do now. There's nothing. It's over. It's, 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 we're talking about God here. And God is present in the most sordid affairs. Beloved, the most sordid affairs. That's where he works. God isn't absent here. Look at verse 31. When the Lord saw, so, oh, he was, he is there. He is watching all of this. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. But Rachel was barren. He is the God who sees. Jilted Hagar found that out early on in Genesis. So does Leah. See, God hasn't forgotten Leah. God doesn't make Leah second rate because her eyes were weak. That's what we do. That's not what God does. This is a twist 
that might have been the Lord's doing. Could have been to bring Jacob's plans to nothing again. God's plan was for Jacob to have Leah. I read something about this moment. Man proposes, but God disposes. Proverbs 19.21, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Here the firstborn is blessed with children, but the younger daughter is not. And it's the unloved wife here who testifies to the Lord's faithfulness. Verse 33, she conceived again and bore a son. I'm sorry, I didn't read, I didn't read verse 32. And Leah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Reuben, for she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. The earth is sad. That's sad for her, right? Verse 33, she conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. And you hear the anguish in the woman's prayers. Maybe now I'll be of some value to my husband. Therefore, his name was called Levi, 35. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. As her life goes on, remember time is passing in those verses. The love of Jacob apparently continues to elude her, right? She finally fixes her eyes on the Lord In verse 35, with the birth of Judah, Leah, the unloved and unwanted wife, bears four children. Who will father four of the most important of the twelve tribes of Israel? Moses and Aaron would be born in the tribe of Levi. The Lord would choose the Levites to serve him in the temple. David would be born from the tribe of Judah. From them, the Lord would choose the royal line of all the kings. From them would come Christ himself. That's where God identifies himself with us on the earth, the line of Leah, right? Unloved, unwanted in the world. When the nation of Israel would read this text later, in light of what they've already read so far about Jacob, they would have continued to see this mystery. Our sovereign Lord, and and remember, remember what Israel as a nation has been through by the time they would have gotten the book of Genesis, Right? They're, they're on the border of the promised land. They, they've gone through slavery in Egypt, the Red Sea, right? The, the, the wilderness, all these things. And they're reading this. Now, our sovereign Lord tends to fulfill all of his promises through human deceit and scheming. Right? In 2814, God promised Jacob at Bethel, your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. And with the birth of four sons from a wife he didn't choose, didn't even want, and didn't love, the Lord is beginning to fulfill that promise. All through the story of the seed of the woman, the prophecy is threatened by about every possible disadvantage or failure human beings can make or have. At the end of Genesis, when Jacob moves to Egypt, the total number of people born to Jacob was 70. That'll be in 46:27. Biblically speaking, 70 would be a full number of people, a great number of people. 
But that isn't necessarily like the dust of the earth, is it? Though in Egypt, while under horrible persecution, threatened again by extinction, Israel will rapidly multiply. Why? Well, because some midwives are dishonest, right? Which is okay. But even then, they aren't as many as the dust of the earth, right? They're still little compared to the rest of the nations. But God will fulfill this promise, beloved, and he will do it through the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whose name is Jesus Christ. Because we'll find later in the scripture that belonging to the family of God has nothing to do with ethnicity. God never departs from this original plan and promise. The rest of the Bible is really nothing more than God keeping this word that he spoke to our patriarchs, beloved. Judas deceived Jesus. We remember that. Sold him out. You remember? 30 pieces of silver. Betrayed him with a kiss. That was just the last in a long line of horrible deception in the story of Abraham's seed. We're reading that. If we're reading that in light of the whole Bible and all that's happening to Jesus, as we talked about two weeks ago, it's like it's, it's happening again. It's being bamboozled again. We're seeing it happen again. It was par for the course in the story of the seed of the woman. We've been waiting on the seed of the woman in the story by the time we get to Matthew, and it looks like it's just going to be stolen and taken again and ended. But Jesus will be the curse's undoing because in him there is no sin. Jesus will change the DNA of this family, beloved. The chief priests and the council would use their false testimony. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Pilate in the Roman Empire, knowing he was innocent, would hand him over. And these deceptions would be the very means now by which God would fulfill his promise that Jacob's offspring would be like the dust of the earth. What did the cross bring about? What did the cross accomplish? God doesn't just bring about redemption through human deception. He fulfills his promises through human deception. Now, what do we make of all that? Why deception? Why is there so much deceit, human wrangling in the story of our salvation? I think because God means to bring about our salvation by undoing all human effort to grasp the blessing on our own through deception. See, we, if we want to try to grasp the promise of God, we have to be dishonest about it. Right? We, we know we can't get it cleanly. We know we can't get it honestly. So we have to try and cover for the ways we don't meet up to the standard. We have to try and get over on other people and look better than they do. And this all amounts to our effort and deception. We're playing games. We're trying to do whatever we can to grasp this blessing. And yet God overrides it all with pure grace. God will not be stopped. We have to understand this together when we read these sordid stories. What is really trying, what are we really being told here is that, listen, put up your worst. I'm, I'm, I'm going to work through it. You, you can't undo what I plan to do. You cannot do it. Right? The, the, the climax of the plan and promise that began with the crucifixion and resurrection is nothing less than God keeping this word to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Bible is the story of God's relentless commitment to salvation. What can stop him? 
What can derail him? The deception and murder of Jesus is the climax of man's best efforts to say, we don't need you, we'll be blessed on our own, we'll succeed on our own, we'll thrive on our own, we'll be our own gods, right? We have no king but Caesar, his blood be on us and on our children, political expediency, all of it. It's the climax of every horrendous thing about humanity. And it's the very means by which God accomplishes his promises and fulfills them even where the ones where he's specific and says, your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. When Jesus had risen from the dead, he told his disciples in Luke 24, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. What is the purpose of that? Salvation, beginning from Jerusalem. And then Paul will come along and tell us, Yes, that's to be grafted in to the family of God to partake of the promise I made to Abraham before your nation even existed. We love it. God didn't forget what he had said. So he sent out his followers to make disciples of all nations, children of God. In Matthew twenty-eight, nineteen, and beloved, what is the final result of all this? of this mission to be fruitful and multiply spiritually, to fill the earth with sons and daughters of God. Well, there's a song about it, about the end result of that. It's in Revelation 5, 9, and 10. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Through Jesus Christ, God will keep this promise. Jacob's offspring will indeed become like the dust of the earth. For those of faith in this Jesus, remember, they are the seed of Abraham. And by extension, therefore, of Isaac and Jacob, Galatians 3, 29, heirs according to what? Promise, beloved. The world will cloud the reality of this promise. But look at the circumstances that have always surrounded it. It is nothing new to wonder if the promise is going to die out. That's normal for the children of God to feel that way. That's part, though, of its glory. Christians are an increasingly struggling minority in the world. We're just beginning to feel that finally in America. What it's like to be the struggling minority, that, that the tide is shifting. Many in the world today are martyred and killed for their faith and other nations left to die. Secularism has been decimating the church in Europe for years. Uh, progressive theology, secularism, liberalism are decimating the church here in North America even as we speak. The health and wealth gospel continues to infect the church on the African continent, South America. It's very bad. Oppression and persecution threaten the church in the Middle East and in Asia. There's such a concerted effort by the enemy, by so many ways and means to destroy the church, to end God's promise. So many lies, so much brutality, so much infection, so much deception. It seems like the church is dying out. Right? Are these finally the days that the promise to Jacob that his descendants will be like the dust of the earth is bound to fail? Right? We, we, we don't see conversion so much. Anymore. 
Well, what does the Bible teach us, though? What does the Bible teach us? These are the very means we've seen God keep his promises. Here is when the light begins to shine. We've seen this all through the scripture. Here's here's the reality. God is just stronger. That's it. God is stronger than you and I. His word is stronger. His will is stronger. His promises are stronger. God is just stronger. What can be thrown at him that will frustrate him? Right? In the story of this wedding in the scheme of Laban, God is showing us that he's never absent, not even when he's, when he's not mentioned in the story. He's not absent when we are ruining things. When we are caught up, he's not absent. If God has said his promise over you, beloved, it's done. It's done. Our sovereign Lord will fulfill his promise that Jacob's descendants will be as numerous as the dust of the earth. Jesus alludes to this all the time. Listen to him in Matthew 8, 11. I tell you, many will come from east and west and will eat with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. You and I will meet Jacob. You realize this. We'll meet him. You ever think about the eternal feast ever when all is said and done? And who will actually be there and who won't be there? One thing will bind us all together. As we link arms with Jacob and sing songs and eat an unending feast together. In a land where righteousness dwells and there's no more suffering and no more pain. I wonder how often we'll look at each other in the middle of all that and remember together that none of us deserve to be there. Nobody will be there because they were committed enough. Nobody will be there because they were pure enough. We will relate to Jacob over there. Not that we've done maybe in our lives things as scheming as he did, but that's our ilk. That's our DNA. That's what we bring to the table. Jesus injected us with his DNA. That's why we will be there. The feast will be enjoyed. The sins will be covered. The life will be eternal because God was relentlessly committed to our salvation regardless of all that we ever did to try and ruin it or lose it. Jacob will hug us. (laughs) We'll hug him back. Look at each other. Do you, do you believe this? This should give you hope tonight. Every time you read one of the sordid tales from the Bible, from Genesis, all the mess of everyday life for human beings cannot frustrate or overturn the plan and promise of Almighty God, beloved. It just can't happen. Not then, not now. You are secure tonight. There's nothing that can undo this. Not our worst days or our worst worst years. His his purpose will stand over against everyone and everything. God will not relent. He is our Savior. And in this is our hope, beloved. 
The promise abides. The word abides. Christ abides. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for your promise. God, we haven't finished reading sordid tales. We haven't finished discovering all that you are able to work in and through to bring about your plan. And so, God, we we look to you as we struggle, as we go through things we can't explain and oppression and opposition and sometimes suffering and trials of our own making, God, because we tried to get ahead of your promise or, or trying to grasp it on our own or all, just all the things we might go through, Father, as we travel here, we, we ask that you would be with us that you would not forget us and we would not forget you. And Lord, when we do, your word will keep us. Your promise is stronger than we are. You're relentless. And we praise you for it in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Watch over your people tonight as they go. I ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.